Well, you've, you've heard the stories, you've read the books, you've seen the movies, you may even have played the video games, where the knight dresses up in his shining armor, jumps onto his white horse, and heads off, engaged in a, a magnificent quest. You're with me so far? All right, very good. He's off to face the greatest challenge the kingdom has to offer. It might be to conquer the king's enemies or to rescue the princess from that fire-breathing dragon. But whatever it is, he's up to the task. And so off he charges. And he does this to serve his king and kingdom. But when you really pay attention to the story, you understand that there is a much different motive at play as well. He also does this to prove himself the strongest, the bravest, and the greatest in the kingdom. And of course, he is looking forward to being celebrated, exalted, and rewarded accordingly. And so we have this quest to become not just someone who accomplished a great task, but to become the greatest in the kingdom. Well, that's, that's fairy tale stuff, isn't it? That's once upon a time living, and we've, we've heard those stories, and we understand all of that. But today we are finding ourselves in Matthew 18 as we continue to work our way through Matthew's gospel. And as we come to Matthew 18, we are dealing with a real kingdom, God's kingdom. And we are dealing with real questions and real issues. And those questions that we'll look at this morning are simply these. Who is, in fact, the greatest in the kingdom? And what is the greatest challenge facing us in the kingdom? And those are two questions that I think Matthew answers for us in Matthew 18. So let's begin by just reading these first four verses together. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples asked Jesus this question. It could have been motivated by many things. Just curiosity. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? You've been telling us about the kingdom. We want to know more. It could be a question that kind of hints at, are, are one of us on that list? Are we at least in the running? How does one attain such status? How do you get to be the greatest in the kingdom? We're not sure exactly the motive of the question at this particular point, but they ask this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus gives them a very unexpected answer. His answer has two parts to it, really. He begins by saying, you are asking the completely wrong question here. You are asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Maybe hinting at, can I achieve that someday? And Jesus says, how about we do this? Instead of wondering if you're the greatest in the kingdom, why don't you make sure you're actually in the kingdom? And that's what he says here in verse 3. 
he says, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So don't focus on being the greatest there. You might not even be in. So let's take a look at this, he says. You need to turn from this adult preoccupation with the pursuit of greatness and simply adopt this childlike faith of complete surrender and humility. Because if you don't, you will never enter the kingdom, much less be the greatest in it. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who humbles himself. Humbles himself as a child. So if you're in the kingdom and you want to be the greatest, well, again, it's all tied into this concept of humility, Jesus says. It's acknowledging your position of lowliness before God and others and then actually practicing lowliness. See, humility is an attitude, but it's also a lifestyle. Sometimes we just think it's an attitude and we leave it there, but no, it plays out in how we interact with others, does it not? Absolutely. It's an attitude and a lifestyle. The greatest in the kingdom is one who is actually in the kingdom by surrendering themselves completely in childlike faith to the Father and who humbles themselves. When you humble yourself, that is how you achieve greatness in the kingdom. Kenny Rogers wrote a great song and I'm going to do you a marvelous favor and not sing it to you. But let me read it, okay? It's called The Greatest. A little boy in a baseball hat stands in the field with his ball and bat. He says, I am the greatest player of them all. And he puts his bat on his shoulder and he tosses up his ball. And the ball goes up and the ball comes down and he swings that bat all the way around and the world's so still you can hear the sound as the baseball falls to the ground. Now the little boy doesn't say a word. He picks up his ball. He is undeterred. He says, I'm the greatest there's ever been and he grits his teeth and he tries it again. And the ball goes up and the ball comes down and he swings that bat all the way around and the world's so still you can hear the sound as the baseball falls to the ground. Well, he makes no excuses. He shows no fears. He just closes his eyes and he listens to the cheers. The little boy in a baseball hat picks up his ball and he stares at his bat. He says, I'm the greatest and the game is on the line and he gives it his all one last time. And the ball goes up like the moon's so bright. He swings his bat with all his might. And the world's so still as still can be. And the baseball falls. And that's strike three. Well, now it's supper time and his mama calls and the little boy starts home with his bat and his ball. And he says, that's the greatest. I'm the greatest and that is a fact. But even I didn't know I could pitch like that. (laughs) When I think that I'm the greatest... I tend to do three things. 
when you think that you're the greatest, you tend to do these same three things. Number one, we ignore reality. Number two, we excuse our shortcomings. And number three, we look down on everyone else around us. We ignore reality, we excuse our shortcomings, and we look down on everyone else around us because we're convinced that we are the greatest. And Jesus said in Matthew 20, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And who would ever be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to be great in the kingdom? You need to humble yourself and become a servant. Jesus, after all, is the leading example of such an action, isn't he? He who did not count equality with God something to be grasped and clung to, but instead humbled himself and took on the very nature of a servant being found in human likeness. Wow. Paul starts out Philippians 2 by saying, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who did that very thing. So the greatest in the kingdom is the person who will humble themselves. And by the way, without humbling yourself and surrendering completely to God, we're not even in the kingdom, let alone the greatest. Well, if that's who the greatest is in the kingdom... What is the greatest challenge we, focus, we face in the kingdom? Well, I think Matthew 18 goes on to tell us of one of the greatest challenges. If this is not the greatest challenge you face in the kingdom, it is certainly on the list of the greatest challenges you face. And if we jump down here to chapter 18, verse 21, we see the greatest challenge laid out before us. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. How many times have we heard that? We've heard this passage over and over, haven't we? Forgiveness. Is one of the greatest challenges we face in the kingdom. Let's take a look. The background of this question comes from verses 15 to 20, where Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you and that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
consider him to be an unbeliever, someone who's going to completely continue to live in unrepentant sin like that. And they won't respond to the confrontation of a brother or several brothers or even the church. We have to make some spiritual assumptions here, we're told. And whatever you bind... Uh, on earth shall have been bound in heaven is the way the uh, phrasing reads there originally shall have been bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven and again I say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there I am among them Jesus tells them if somebody sins against you here's how you deal with it you go and you, you deal with it with them you don't go tell everybody else and get a group of people on your side so now everybody hates this guy. What do you do? You go and you confront him and say, hey, we got a problem here. And if he listens and responds, you've gained your brother and things are good and now we just carry on. If he doesn't, we say, okay, we got a bigger problem here. And we bring a couple others and say, we need to pray about this and talk about this. This is a problem. If he still refuses, then we go to the church and we bring him to the church. And if he refuses to repent, we say, okay, clearly you're not what's part of what's going on here. To live in complete unrepentant sin like that, that tells us something about the heart and we need to treat you as though you're, you're not even a believer. And Jesus lays all this out for them and as he does, Peter kind of drifts off in thought a little bit. Have you ever done that? Are you doing it now? Someone's speaking and you kind of just... Peter's back to if your brother sins against you. He's like, yeah, I got a list. I mean, I had a lot of people that have done that. Jesus, you know, you tell us the process here and that's all well and good, but like how many times do we got to go through this? If my brother sins against me, how many times do I really got to forgive the guy? How about... You know, let's stretch it. We'll exaggerate and give a huge, ridiculous example of how, how many times I might do this to show what grace we have in the kingdom. How about, say, seven times? And Jesus says, seven? Seven? How about 70 times seven? Well, I'd kind of lose track in that process. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what we're saying here. Jesus says, why don't you stop keeping track how many times you forgive? And when somebody comes to repent for having sinned against you, you just simply forgive. Don't keep track. And he illustrates this now with this well-known story. He says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let's do the math and say we're owing millions of dollars here. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. This guy owes like lunch money, or maybe a week's worth of groceries. 
So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and and I'll pay you. He refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. It should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. We hear that story and we say, that's ridiculous. Can you imagine being forgiven a debt of millions of dollars? And in order to really understand this story, you have to look at verse 27 and realize he did not say, do you know what I'm going to do for you because you're pleading with me for mercy? I'll release you and your family from prison and you go ahead and pay me back. That's not what he said. He didn't say, you know what, I'll, I'll release you from prison and you go work and you work this off. You, you earn this back and, and work off this debt. And by the way, if either of those is the way you view God's forgiveness, we need to sit down and talk. Because that's not the way God forgives. God doesn't forgive you and then you somehow earn this back. That's not the way it works. Now what happens in verse 27 is the master in pity sees this man completely incapable of even coming close. He's saying, I'll pay it all off. And the joke of it is you can't because it's like millions of dollars. It's this ridiculous sum. He'd never be able to pay it off. But he's saying, I'll try, I'll do it, I'll do it. And the master's saying, you can't. So I will simply forgive your debt. It's gone. Wipe it off the books. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? The relief that would have just flooded over him. And he runs out and instead of going home to tell his wife, we are free, we're out from under this cloud that's been following us for so long, he bumps into a guy who owes him lunch money from last week. And he says, hey, you owe me. Well, yeah, but I don't have it. Please, just give me some time and I'll learn it. Yeah, really? And he puts the guy in prison. And we say this is absolutely ludicrous that someone who had been given, forgiven so much would be so merciless with somebody else who owed so little. And so as Jesus ends this story and says, the master hears about this, and he comes to the first guy and says, you wicked servant, look at what you've been forgiven, and this is how you're going to treat everybody else? Forget it. And he throws him into prison and says, you're done. You're done. And we say, well, that makes sense. It's nice to see justice served. We understand this. This makes total sense. This is the way the story should end. Finally, things have been made right. And just as we're ready to come to that conclusion and start talking amongst ourselves as Jesus is talking at the front of the crowd, we hear that he hasn't stopped. He he has something else to say on this matter, and he doesn't end at verse 34. Instead, he continues on, and he adds this inconvenient phrase for us. 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Pardon? Seriously? And Jesus looks back at Peter and says, Are we still counting? You still keeping track of how many times that person's offended you? You got your little scorecard out? Or are you willing to look at Almighty God and say, My sin against you was forgiven? Surely I can forgive whatever this was. Surely because you don't keep track of how many times you forgive me, I don't need to keep track of how many times I forgive them. And that's what Jesus has to say. If we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. That's not a concept people like to talk about too much, but it's right here. I'm not making this up. It's right here in the Word of God. Jesus says, if we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. Does that sound harsh? It's amazing how people want God to be fair when they're the ones that seem to be suffering injustice. But we don't want God to be fair when we're the ones on the other side of the deal. Let's read together from Matthew chapter 6 this morning. We studied this a while ago when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Is there one more there? But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus said it. You don't forgive others, God doesn't forgive you. It makes me wonder, how many people are walking around thinking that they're okay and God's forgiven them when He hasn't because they haven't forgiven others? That's a huge deal to understand, is it not? Well, how is all of this connected, this greatest challenge in the kingdom, and who is the greatest in the kingdom? Why are we connecting verse 3 and 4 of Matthew 18 down with verse 35 of Matthew 18? Well, I'm convinced that it all starts with my view of God, my view of myself, and my view of others. It's one thing for me to view God as completely supreme, completely far and above and apart from all else to whom I must simply surrender in complete humility. It's another thing to think, well, God is kind of fortunate to have me on his team. <laughs> and, you know, I look around the room and go, seriously? No wonder he asked me, right? A little different to have that kind of opinion. You see, if I think I'm greater than everyone else, I can't really be in a position of humility before God. The way Scripture often portrays this position of humility is one of those old words, prostrate. You know what it means? It means face first on the carpet. 
absolute, total humility and surrender. And when you're in that position before God, you're in no position to be looking around, lording it over anybody else. And that's what he's saying here. We have to just completely surrender and humble ourselves before God to even get into the kingdom. And then he says the ones that are esteemed in the kingdom, those are the ones that humble themselves and become servants, not trying to lord it over the other servants. Those who realize that when they're in a position of humility before God, they're in no position to lord it over anyone else. It's amazing how often we are convinced that our sin, my sin before God, isn't really that big a deal. But somebody else's offense against me is. Wow. Boy, are things out of whack when that's going on. That's just not the way it is. And some of you are sitting here this morning and you're thinking, this is great. You can stand up there and talk about forgiveness all you want. You don't know how deeply I've been offended or hurt. You don't know what I have to forgive. Uh, I might not know the details of your situation. But we all have been and maybe even are in a position where we need to forgive. And I'm not here saying it's easy I'm simply here saying it's necessary. And if we want to do the easy thing, then following Jesus is a poor choice. Because following Jesus is not easy. It takes everything we have and everything we are. But it's the only thing that makes sense and the only thing that matters in the long run. Amen? And He calls us to a life of forgiveness. Gary Preston tells the story of of a man who was traveling through the jungles of Burma with a guide. And as they were coming through the jungle, they came to this river, and it was wide, but it wasn't all that deep. And so the two of them waded through the water, and they got to the other side. And as they came out of the water, the man looked, and on his torso and his legs, he was covered with leeches. And so his, his natural instinct was to reach down and to start to grab these leeches to pull them off. And the guy grabbed his wrists and said, don't do that. He said, why not? He said, if you start ripping at these things, you'll just tear them off and, and their heads will actually be buried under your skin. And they will stay there and they will become infected and you're going to have a problem. He said, what do I do? He said, here's what you do. You come and you just sit in this this bath and you're just going to soak. Soak here in a warm balsam bath for a few minutes. And as you do, those leeches begin to soak in that. And they relax and they release their hold and you'll be able to get rid of them. And he goes on to write this. When I have been significantly injured or offended by another person, I cannot simply yank the injury from myself and expect that all bitterness, malice, and emotion will be gone. Resentment still hides under the surface. 
The only way to become fully free of the offense and to completely forgive others is to bathe in the soothing bath of God's forgiveness of me. When I finally fathom the extent of God's love in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of others will be a natural outflow. When I stop looking at how deeply they've offended me, and I reflect on how deeply I've offended God, and yet how gracious He is, that in mercy He gives me, in mercy He does not give me what I deserve, and in grace He gives me what I could never earn, and He offers me complete forgiveness. And when I reflect on that, maybe it becomes a little easier to extend forgiveness to those around me. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiving people are forgiven. Both principles are taught in Scripture and the cycle goes around and around and around. The bottom line when it comes to forgiveness is this. Jesus says, don't keep track. I mean, how many times has God forgiven you? You probably haven't kept track of that. Just forgive. As God did. First John 1 John 1.9. Let's read this together. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you grateful for that? That when you come in humility and repentance before God, He's just waiting to forgive and to cleanse? Isn't that amazing? With that in mind, let's read Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Just as God forgave us, that is our model for how we forgive others. Colossians 3 puts it this way. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It starts with a heart of humility before God. A heart of humility before others. Say, God has forgiven me. I'm certainly no better than you. I can forgive your offense to me. Look at what God has forgiven me. I can forgive you. And so as we reflect on, on what we've heard this morning and begin to formulate what kind of response needs to come from our hearts, I have two questions for you to consider today. The first is this. Is there something for which I need to be forgiven? You see, if the greatest challenge in the kingdom, or one of the greatest challenges in the kingdom is forgiving others, the other side of that coin is actually admitting I need to be forgiven and humbling myself and coming to God and others in repentance. If there is something for which you need to be forgiven, deal with it. Why would you carry that around? Why would you let that affect the way you think and act and feel and live and function and serve and carry on and interact? Why would you drag this cloud with you? 
And God says, come on. What does he say in Isaiah? It doesn't have to be like that. Let's reason together. It doesn't matter how how intense that sin is. You bring it to me. I can forgive that. And I can make it clean. Come on. Why are you dragging that? And if there is something in your life for which you need to be forgiven, go to God in humility. Confess it and repent of it. And be amazed again at his mercy and grace. If there is something for which you need to be forgiven from someone else, humble yourself. Humble yourself and go in repentance and confession. No excuses. I did this. I sinned against you. Forgive me. I don't want to live there. I don't want to do those things. I don't want to treat you like that. I'm sorry. Would you possibly forgive me? Humble yourself and go make it right. Do it. Does God forgive without repentance? an interesting question, isn't it? If God forgives without repentance, there's no need of preaching the gospel anywhere. And sometimes we assume that everybody in our lives just better get over it and forgive me and move on without me having to bother humbling myself and repent and make things right. If there's something for which you need to be forgiven, humble yourself and make it right with God and with others. Secondly, is there someone whom I need to forgive? But Steve, you don't know what. Didn't ask. Don't need to know. Is there someone whom you need to forgive? Then I suggest you take two steps this morning. Number one, you go to God for the strength to deal with this properly. And then secondly, you get up and you go to that person in humility and you express forgiveness. And every time somebody or Satan or anyone else or you just of your own sinful mind want to wander back there and kind of recount that offense, you just remind yourself, nope, I remember the day that God told me I needed to choose to forgive and I chose to forgive, so I'll live there. Go to God for strength and go to others with forgiveness. Does it matter? Oh yes, because the scriptures clearly teach if there's no forgiveness from you, there's no forgiveness for you. Wow. Humbling ourselves before God and others. That's the start of getting into the kingdom. Humbling ourselves enough to admit our sin and rebellion against God and that I am simply an object of wrath deserving of nothing but his judgment and he is right when he does with me what he will. But turning my back on doing things my way and saying, I come to you not because I earned this, but because Jesus took all of this on himself. He became sin for me so that in him I could become the righteousness of God. He traded places with me, so I'm not going to keep living back there. 
and I will come to you and embrace what you can only give and that's forgiveness and life and I will follow you humbly. And you enter the kingdom and we humble ourselves and we serve and we forgive and this humility before God and others is often shown greatly in our willingness to forgive. And in those moments where it seems extra tough, let's just remember that the foundation of it all is that truly the greatest in the kingdom, instead of looking at each other and who's the greatest of us in the kingdom, the greatest in the kingdom is the king. And it's all for him, and it's all about him. And it really has a lot less to do with me than I like to think some days. Amen? Our music team is going to come and lead us in a closing song. You take a few moments now. There might be faces and names in your brain right now. The Lord's just put them on your heart. You need to ask for forgiveness or you need to forgive. You write those down and you commit before the Lord right now. Here's what I'm going to do to deal with this. And I'm not going to wait until Thursday. I'll do it today. You might need to get up and walk across the room right now and extend forgiveness to somebody sitting here so that you can lift your hearts and praise to God legitimately. You might need to catch somebody in the parking lot on the way out or when you get home before you have lunch together. Let's deal with what God has been saying to us. We're going to sing. If the Lord's still speaking to you and you need to reflect, then you just listen and you keep dealing with what He's got for you. Aren't you glad we serve a gracious, merciful God who calls us to become people of mercy and grace as well?